Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. This is our first episode of the new year, and we have much to update you on Pillar 2. Before diving into recent developments, let's start by revisiting the general structure of the global anti-base erosion or GLOBE rules of Pillar 2. The GLOBE rules would impose a minimum tax of 15% on financial statement income of certain entities in a multinational group, so-called constituent entities, subject to certain adjustments that income and substance-based carve-outs. This minimum tax, a top-up tax computed on a jurisdictional basis based on the difference between the GLOBE ETR and 15%, would be collected through one of three mechanisms, the Income Inclusion Rule, or IIR, the Under-Tax Profits Rule, or UTPR, or the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, or QDMTT. The QDMTT would get the first bite at the apple, a country that adopts this QDMTT would collect any top of tax due with respect to constituent entities resident in its own jurisdiction. If a QDMTT doesn't hoover up the top of tax, the IIR of an ultimate parent or an intermediate parent of the country of the ultimate parent has not adopted an IIR, imposes a top of tax on the parent with respect to the low tax income of its subsidiary constituent entities, similar to our guilty. To the extent the top-up tax of a constituent entity is not collected through either a QDMTT or an IIR, the UTPR would generally allocate that top-up tax to non-parent affiliates of the constituent entity by denying deductions of or imputing income to such affiliates. The GLOBE model rules were adopted in December 2021. Throughout most of 2022, we witnessed slow but steady progress towards implementation of the GLOBE rules. But this progress accelerated dramatically in the last few weeks of 2022. First, on November 17, 2022, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer confirmed that the IAR and the QDMTT would be introduced into UK law for accounting periods beginning in 2024, with the introduction of the UTPR being delayed another year to 2025. In addition, and most importantly, after much behind-the-scenes diplomacy, the EU on December 16th finally achieved unanimity for a directive to implement Pillar 2 by overcoming the stiff and public opposition from Hungary whose prime minister had called Pillar 2 a jobs killer. Under the directive, EU countries are now required to implement into the domestic law the IAR for tax years beginning in 2024 and the UTPR beginning in 2025. Then on December 20th, exactly a year after the release of the model rules and commentary on Pillar 2, the OECD released a portion of the implementation package for the GLOBE rules. While this implementation package did not contain any technical guidance on the GLOBE model rules, 
It did include transitional safe harbors, a framework for permanent safe harbors, a first draft of data points that will be included in the GLOBE information return, and a paper exploring approaches to tax certainty. We will talk more about the safe harbors later. And finally, on Christmas Eve's Eve, the Korean National Assembly passed a tax bill, which, amongst other things, enacted both the IAR and the UTPR effective in 2024. This effective date for the UTPR is a full year before the proposed effective date of the UTPR for the UK and the EU. Obviously, the United States has not adopted the GLOBE rules and likely will not in the very near future. The corporate AMT, or CAMT, may be viewed as a step in the right direction. But the CAMT and GLOBE are fundamentally different regimes and don't necessarily play well together. In any case, as we've said before on this podcast, and we'll probably say many more times again, the failure of the U.S. to adopt GLOBE in no way insulates U.S. companies from the application of GLOBE. The income of a CFC of a U.S. multinational could be subject to an IAR of the country of an intermediate holding company or a QDMTT of the CFC's own country, in addition to R, Guilty, and KMT. Further, and maybe most significantly, the income of the U.S. parent itself can be subject to the UTPR of any country in which the group has operations. Notwithstanding our 21% statutory rate, preferences such as FIDI and certain non-refundable tax credits can drive a company well below the 15% minimum rate. This is happening, folks. The real question is, what can U.S. companies expect to come as the GLOBE rules come online. To help us answer this, we are joined again on this podcast by Marcus Heeland, who keeps a very close eye on Pillar 2 developments. Prior to rejoining KPMG, Marcus served as an advisor at the OECD and BEPS 2.0. Marcus, welcome back. Thanks, Gary. Glad to be with you. Marcus, let's start with Korea. We've been talking a lot about directives, statements from government officials, and even proposed legislation. But this is actual law, albeit one with a delayed effective date. Seems like this is a pretty big deal. Do you agree? And is there anything to be gleaned from this? Yeah. So as you said in your introduction, in December last year, Korea passed tax legislation. So not a draft or proposal, but actual legislation that brings the income inclusion rule and the under-tax profits rule into effect in Korea from January 1st of 2024. I agree with you. I think this is a big deal for U.S.-based multinationals with operations in Korea for at least two reasons. So the first is around the financial reporting and the accounting for income tax piece. The second is to the extent a U.S. multinational has that circumstance that you described in your opening, which is they have a low tax outcome on their U.S. earnings, then um, you know previously that wouldn't have been an issue until 2025, whereas now Korea, that potentially becomes an issue in 2024. So to unpack those a bit, starting with the financial accounting piece, to the extent that the Korean legislation meets the threshold of enacted or substantially enacted 
then U.S. companies would need to, you know, think about reflecting that, including, you know, to the extent there's basis differences uh, in their 1231 of 2022 financial statements. Now, there's that question of whether we have hit the enacted or substantially enacted threshold is still being actively studied. And then related to that, we're also expecting guidance from FASB on how to deal with Pillar 2 generally also, you know, in the coming weeks. On the you know, second impact, you know, this is more getting to the financial impact, is for U.S. companies that you know, had those non-refundable credits or other issues, and they have low-tax um, earnings in, in the United States. Previously, the thought was those earnings would not be topped up until 2025, which is where the under-tax profits rule would, will take effect in the EU and other countries around the world. That now has been accelerated one year because Korea's legislation is looking at a 2024 effective date. And so essentially, unless the law is changed, multinationals would be paying 100% of the top-up tax related to the earnings in the United States to the Korean government in 2024. Uh, and that's because as the legislation is currently drafted, at least as I understand it, it's not in any obvious way limited to the local deductions in Korea. So for both of those reasons, the financial accounting piece and then just the, you know, the impact of low tax outcomes in the United States. It feels like Korea has skipped the line on UTPR by going potentially a year early. What's the problem with that? And is there any chance that Korea lets this date slip to conform to other countries? Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, there is a question here as to whether Korea has violated the OECD agreement. Strictly speaking, I don't think they have. The inclusive framework originally agreed that the income inclusion rule should take effect from 2023 and the under tax profits rule from 2024. Korea's legislation follows that with respect to the undertax profits rule. With that being said, I think there was a soft understanding that if the income inclusion rule slipped to 2024, which it has, then the UTPR should commensurately slip to 2025. We see that reflected in the EU directive, for example. It is also notable that the safe harbor document that was released by the OECD in December and approved by the full inclusive framework, including Korea, stated that the expectation was that the UTPR would not come into effect until 2025. So the question now is, will Korea amend its legislation and in particular push back the effective date of the UTPR to 2025? My impression is that Korea will be strongly encouraged to do that by businesses for sure. But I would also think the United States Treasury would also um, encourage Korea in this regard. Procedurally, I think the hope is that Korea will make this change as part of the coming enforcement decree that I mentioned, and that's expected later in the year. My impression, Gary, is that Korea perhaps had no idea that what it was doing was so controversial, and I expect in the end they'll back off, assuming they are pushed by the U.S. to do that, but that is far from certain, and, and I think businesses can only plan for the law as it stands, which is a UTPR effective in Korea in 2024. So when it comes to Globe, U.S. multinationals should be particularly sensitive to the UTPR because that's the vehicle by which U.S. income will be in the vernacular of the model rules and commentary brought into charge. In the tax press lately, there's been quite a bit of back and forth on whether the UTPR is consistent with our bilateral treaties. As far as I can tell, and I'm as far from a treaty expert as one can be and still be a mammal, 
The anti-UTPR camp is arguing that this is in violation of our treaties because it's an extraterritorial tax on income not attributed to the UTPR country by reason of a PE or otherwise. Whereas the pro-UTPR camp is asserting that this is no different than existing CFC regimes, which are permitted under our treaties, except that instead of attributing the income to a shareholder, we're attributing that income to an affiliate. We're certainly not going to answer whether these arguments are valid here. But Marcus, what is the practical import of this debate for a U.S. multinational that's mulling a treaty challenge? There's a lot here. Um, I think there could be a treatise um, on this question. And like you, I'm also not a treaty expert, but a few reflections. First, I would start by observing that in the vast majority of cases, I do not expect the UTPR to apply. And the reason for that is that the UTPR, as you explained in the introduction, is third in line, meaning that under tax profits rules only apply in the circumstance that there isn't already a domestic top of tax or income inclusion rule applying. And I expect a large number of countries to have income inclusion rules and qualified domestic top of taxes from 2024. And so if that happens, we wouldn't get to the question of the UTPR and the treaty issue very often. But as you indicated in your question, there's at least one circumstance where the UTPR will matter a lot, uh, and that is U.S. parented multinationals with low tax income in the United States. I think the current approach of the Treasury Department is rather than objecting to the UTPR using treaty arguments, is to instead work to minimize the circumstance in the first place. So, for example, it's clear that Treasury is working to protect the value of tax credits that come through flow-through arrangements. That would be affordable housing and some energy credits, for example. I think Treasury will also try to get favorable interpretations of some of the transition rules to protect companies that come into the regime with credit carry forwards, be it R&D or foreign tax credits. To be sure, even if Treasury is successful in landing all of that, which is far from certain, there still will be cases where U.S. income is viewed as taxed less than 15 percent under Pillar 2 math. For example, a company with a material general business credit such as R&D and an FDII deduction, I just can't see how Treasury can protect that within the framework of the model rules. And so here is when we, we do get to this question of when the UTPR is applying to U.S. income, um, there's a you know question as to whether the UTPR is a, is a violation of tax treaties. This question is actually not new. Comment letters going back all the way to 2020 were challenging whether the UTPR was consistent with international obligations, including those in tax treaties. Working Party 1, which is the OECD body that looks at treaty matters, including those relevant to Pillar 2, studied this question and seems to have concluded that the UTPR is consistent with treaties, although that argument has never been fully elaborated beyond what is in the blueprint and the argument that's in the blueprint largely rests on the savings clause. I cannot imagine that the Biden administration would argue that the UTPR is inconsistent with treaties because they'd essentially be challenging something that they helped design. But a future administration, I think, could challenge it. As for whether a taxpayer could challenge it, you know, I haven't studied that in great depth, but from what I uh, I assume, the taxpayer would probably have to litigate it in the local country, say Korea first. Normally with you know, MAP cases, you start with the offending jurisdiction competent authority, and then that competent authority would need to agree to take on board such a challenge. 
The taxpayer could also go to the United States, but as I noted, I would uh, assume the IRS wouldn't take on the matter. Plus, without having to bear the tax first, it seems like both countries may say you need to wait until you had suffered before you could challenge the application. I'm not familiar enough with Korea's law or other you know, countries' law around the world to know if you know, they would allow a taxpayer to initiate a challenge before the law ever applied to them. But I know there are companies that are you know, looking at this, and I do think there's legitimate questions as to whether the under-tax profits rule as it's currently designed, which you know applies without regard to ownership, without regard to transactional connection. I think there is a legitimate question there as to whether that rule is a violation of treaties. And I expect that to be you know further discussed and debated over the coming weeks and months and, and perhaps years. Let's talk about something we do know something about. And let's talk about the safe harbors that were introduced in the implementation package from December of last year. Just a level set, a globe top-up tax must be computed for each jurisdiction in which an in-scope company has operations. The computation of a top-up tax can be quite complicated, significantly more complex than simply looking at a country's headline statutory rate. Computing the so-called globe ETR starts with the income and tax expense on a company's financial statements attributable to a country. But then Globe makes many, many adjustments, such as excluding income and taxes arising from sales of stock, recasting deferred tax assets and liabilities to the 15% minimum rate, or entirely excluding DTLs attributable to intangible assets unless they reverse in five years. For instance, a DTL arising with respect to goodwill and other indefinite lived assets, just to name a few. So safe harbors can not only simplify the process of computation, but potentially can have a substantive effect of perhaps causing a company to not have to pay a top-up tax that it otherwise would have to. Marcus, let's talk about these safe harbors Am I correct in understanding that there are two different types? Yeah, there's two safe harbors that are in the document that was released uh, at the end of last year. There's a transitional country-by-country reporting safe harbor, and then a promise to include a permanent safe harbor, but that permanent safe harbor requires significant elaboration before we can determine how it works and, and what the impact would be. But there is detail in the document about the country-by-country reporting transitional safe harbor. It's responding to concerns from the business community that have been raised from really the beginning of this project, which is for a company that has operations in, say, 50 jurisdictions, Pillar 2 requires effective tax rate computations in all 50 jurisdictions. And in most cases, those jurisdictions will be well above the 15% bogey. So, for example, Japan and Germany and Canada you would anticipate that 99 out of 100 times you're going to go through the math and determine that the effective tax rate in those jurisdictions is above 15%. And so the business community has long requested safe harbor mechanisms in order to avoid having to do the full-blown calculation even in those obviously high-tax jurisdictions. And that's what the transitional safe harbor is trying to accomplish. It's trying to identify low-risk jurisdictions through a series of tests And for jurisdictions that are within the safe harbor, you essentially benefit from a significantly streamlined compliance obligation. So 
how effective are these safe harbors and what, what kind of comfort should taxpayers expect from them? Well, the big footnote here is that companies can take comfort from the safe harbors, and I'll describe what those tests are, but it's only available for a period of three years. So it's a transitional safe harbor. It's only available for calendar year companies for 2024, 2025, and 2026. The way that the uh, transitional safe harbor works is there's essentially three tests, and the company only needs to pass one of these three tests, and this is all on a jurisdictional basis, in order to be eligible for the safe harbor. The tests are, there's a de minimis test, there's an ETR test, and then there's a routine profits test. The de minimis test is just what it sounds like. So for jurisdictions where the multinational has very limited operations, so less than 10 million of revenue and less than 1 million of profit, and the measuring stick for both of those numbers for this purpose is the country by country form. So to the extent you operate in a jurisdiction and have very limited operations and have the less than 10 million and less than 1 million, uh, then that jurisdiction would be eligible for the safe harbor and therefore would be excluded from having to do the full-blown pillar two calculation in respect of that jurisdiction. Although that test um, you know, doesn't do much for most multinationals given how low those thresholds are. The second test I think is the most powerful. So this is the ETR test. Here, the multinational would compute a simplified effective tax rate. And if that simplified effective tax rate is above a threshold percentage, then that jurisdiction is eligible for the benefits of the safe harbor. The way that the simplified ETR is computed is, of course, we need a, a measure of income and a measure of tax. Our measure of income will come straight off the CBC return. So we'll look at the profit or loss for that jurisdiction as reflected in the company's country by country report. And that's our denominator for this purpose with no adjustments. The numerator, the tax expense, is pulled from the entity's financial statements that are located in the jurisdiction that we're testing. And we're looking at total tax expense that's in those financial statements, both current tax expense and deferred tax expense. And here too, we make very few adjustments to that uh, to those numbers. The only adjustments we make is uncertain tax positions are excluded and any taxes that are not cover taxes are excluded. What we're finding is this test is most helpful and companies are, I think, able to qualify for this ETR test in uh, not all of their jurisdictions, of course, but a large number of jurisdictions are likely to be eligible for this ETR test and satisfy the, the safe harbor. The final test is this routine profits test. This is most applicable for jurisdictions where the company has you know, significant substance, so a significant number of employees or a significant amount of tangible property. What this is doing is it's essentially saying if your routine return on those substance factors is greater than the profit in that jurisdiction, then we know that there's not going to be any top-up tax there because we don't have any excess earnings. And so this test essentially provides a simplified way to make that determination and will benefit companies. There's a rule here, a one strike and you're out rule, which essentially says if a jurisdiction is ineligible for the safe harbor, so it, it flunks all of these tests in 2024, then that jurisdiction is ineligible in all future years. So it's also ineligible in 2025 and 2026. I think practically what that means is because a lot of these safe harbor tests 
turn on country by country reporting, it's really important to feel good about your CBC report in 2024, because if it's filled out uh, incorrectly or in a way that's not robust, in a way that's hurting you, making it less likely for a jurisdiction to be eligible, that's going to not only hurt you in that year for purposes of this test, but it also locks out that jurisdiction from being eligible for the safe harbor in all future years. Marcus, this ETR test, this isn't just a question of process. This could have a substantive effect, and I'm thinking of its impact on U.S. income that would otherwise be subject to UTPR. Could you explain why this could be the ETR test safe harbor could be helpful for U.S. income? Sure. And and this is, you know, I mentioned these safe harbors are ultimately trying to achieve simplification. And what simplification practically means is there's, you know, very few adjustments that we're making to the, you know, to the sources of information that are feeding this calculation. And as part of the ETR test, there's no adjustment for CFC level taxes. So taxes that a U.S. shareholder would be paying, be it under guilty or be it under subpart F, those taxes would be U.S. taxes for purposes of this safe harbor ETR test. And so to the extent the U.S. company was below 15 percent under the full calculation, it could still pass the safe harbor because of all if it's paying material guilty tax or subpart F taxes, that those would you know be a lift to the ETR and would be you know helpful in that regard. Thanks, Marcus. And so all these tests are based on country by country data. Is all this data going to be available on their country by country reports? The three tests definitely lean on CBC for many aspects, but the data that's required to apply these tests also goes beyond country by country reporting. And I'll focus on the ETR test because I think that's the one that's going to be you know most relevant for most companies. You know, as I mentioned, the income number, which is our denominator for this purpose, that is pulled directly off the CBC. But the numerator, the tax expense, is not. My understanding is the reason why we're not looking at um, CBCR for purposes of tax expense is because CBCR does not include any deferred taxes. And so it wasn't deemed to be a reliable measure of tax for the jurisdiction. So instead, companies would have to pull their what are referred to as qualified financial statements for the entities that are you know, located in the relevant jurisdiction. And the total tax expense that's in those financial statements, not CBC, but in the company's work papers that it's using to prepare its U.S. GAAP consolidated financial statements, that's where you would go for the data to populate the numerator of this um, ETR test. Thanks, Marcus. As we discussed earlier, the safe harbors could have a significant benefit to U.S. multinationals. On that score, staying with U.S. companies, under the model rules, it's pretty clear that guilty and sub-F and assumably any KMT liability that's paid attributable to a CFC's income is pushed down to that CFC's country in determining its adjusted covered taxes for purposes of the IAR and UTPR. In other words, the IAR and UTPR would effectively credit these taxes. 
But the model rules are silent on the treatment of these taxes and applying the QDMTT. Should the QDMTT, which is the source country's own minimum tax, be required to credit guilty, sub F, and Campti, or should the U.S. be required to credit the QDMTT? Do we expect any guidance on that issue soon? I do, yes. I, I, I know it is on a priority list that the OECD, you know, the inclusive framework is working on putting out guidance and this issue of rule order and how does essentially what goes first? Is it the QDMTT going first and then the United States within pre providing a foreign tax credit for taxes paid under the qualified domestic top of tax? Or is in, instead the local country that's implementing that QDMTT, are they taking into account or crediting the guilty um, tax that, that's paid in the United States that is attributable to that jurisdiction? So that's a big question and a threshold question that I understand is being discussed within the inclusive framework. And I would expect that to be included in guidance that's going to be released as soon as February. And what other guidance should we expect from the OECD over the coming weeks and months? In addition to the rule order question, there's also, you know, sticking with guilty, there's also the question of what's the allocation? Like, how do we even make the determination of how much is allocable to country X versus country Y in the first place? Uh, I think we'll get guidance on that issue. I would expect more guidance on the treatment of credits that come through flow through arrangements. So this would respond to the partnership structures where affordable housing and energy credits arise, for example. Uh, I'm expecting guidance there. I'm also think that in this priority guidance that's coming uh, as soon as next month, they'll further elaborate the transitional rules, both Article 9.1.1, which is dealing with when a company comes into the regime, that article talks about the company being able to regard all of its deferred taxes. The question is, does it mean all mean all, including deferred taxes that would otherwise not count for purposes of, of Pillar 2? I expect that to be clarified. There's also been a, a call for a softening of Article 9.1.3, which is that very unfavorable transitional rule around internal asset transfers, which as currently drafted disregards, um, essentially denies basis step up for all asset transfers, even if there's a significant amount of tax being paid on exit. So I anticipate that rule will be softened in this upcoming round of guidance. And then just a final one that I think is particularly important for U.S. companies is it's clear that the model rules and commentary was drafted primarily under an IFRS framework. And as U.S. companies have been applying these rules, one issue that has come up under, under U.S. GAAP is our common control standard, which essentially says that asset transfers, internal asset transfers, are you know, more or less fully you know, ignored. And the rules dealing with asset transfers in the model just do not really contemplate that. And so we're expecting guidance as to how to interpret, you know, the various articles in Pillar 2 around asset transfers in light of the U.S. GAAP common control standard. So those are some of the issues. There will be others, but those are, I would say, you know, four or five of the key issues that I think U.S. companies have been focused on. It's a good reminder that these rules may not have been drafted with U.S. companies in mind. It's more of an IFRS model. In any case, thank you, Marcus. This has been 
an extremely illuminating conversation on a subject that we will undoubtedly keep returning to as we receive additional guidance from the OECD in the coming weeks and months on the implementation of these new Pillar 2 rules. For those of our listeners who are not able to tune in to our Tax Watch webcast on Pillar 2 on January 20th, but are interested in learning more about the practical impacts of the Pillar 2 implementation, please listen to the playback at the link in our show notes. Indeed, I've bookmarked this KPMG Tax Watch website and often listen to these excellent webcasts on my walks. You should consider doing the same. In any case, as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. We'll